Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor and tonight is Sunday, June 13th and we are starting at Proverbs chapter 14 verse 5. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 5 and the verse reads, A faithful witness will not lie, but he who speaks lies is a false witness. <clears throat> a faithful witness will not lie, but he who speaks lies is a false witness. Now the process that we use generally in going through these Proverbs is in this particular section of the book of Proverbs, King Solomon is giving us uh, usually verse by verse individual cases that are there for us to analyze and look at and try to uh, extrapolate out, or not extrapolate, but abstract out the concept of an idea that he's trying to get across. Whenever we study Torah, uh, we want to look for what is there for us to learn. And so, for example, when we read one of the stories in the, in the written Torah itself, uh, one of the, you know, the question we might be asking is, well, in addition to these specific events that occurred, what can we learn from these events? What's the purpose behind the story? What truth can we abstract out of that particular story and pull out in order to understand um, you know, what the Torah is trying to teach us? If you think about what a scientist does, this is how they approach life. They look at a particular set of phenomenon, a bunch of facts in the lab, you know, they got the photons to move like this or that, or this magnet did this, and from those observations, then they try to extrapolate or to act abstract out what is the principle underlying this. So we try to do the same thing uh, with Proverbs, and what King Solomon has done is given us uh, a, a large number of chapters of generally individual cases each verse being a separate case, and then our job is to look at that and figure out, okay, what is the underlying uh, truth or message that he's trying to get to uh, and trying to communicate to us? And the way we do that initially is by asking questions uh, around the verse itself before we try to jump right to answers. There's a tendency sometimes to want to go right to answers on something. But uh, our first step is to ask, what are the questions? Uh, and the questions can be, what do we need to define in order to understand what the verse means? What looks unusual about the verse? What doesn't make sense? What seems peculiar? What seems odd? What is not obvious? Uh, anything like that. So I would invite you at the outset here to look at that verse and share any questions that come to mind. When, it, when you read, a faithful witness will not lie, but he who speaks lies is a false witness. And then we'll see if we can use those questions to help guide our investigation into what the verse is telling us. So let me pause and ask you, what kinds of questions do you see in that verse? Things that are not obvious or that demand an explanation in order for us to be able to understand it. You, Cam, you've said uh, the, the faithful are good and the unfaithful are bad, but we'd have to define <clears throat> kind of what we mean by, by good and bad. Are you, are you asking a question or are you providing an answer? 
Okay. And, and I should explain, the, the reason why that, that I explain this process is there are two things with regard to Proverbs. There's the content itself, and then there's the methodology we use to uncover what the content is actually saying. And both of them are very important in our training. Because one of the brilliance of the book of Proverbs is not just that you kind of open it up like a reference book looking for answers, but by the time you go through the process of wrestling with the ideas to figure out what the verse actually means, you are exercising your thinking process in the same way that we exercise uh, our, or practice ice skating or doing a martial arts move or something like that. Uh, the way that we do that is um, by asking questions uh, around the particular verse. And let me give you some examples. Uh, and Naomi, welcome back. Uh, looks like I'm assuming your audio is working from your last statement. So let me know if that's not the case. Seems to be working here. Okay, Cam, good. Good is, good is truth and, and uh, bad is falseness. Okay, so we could ask at the beginning, when the verse says a faithful witness, we might ask, well, what is a faithful witness? Um, and it says a faithful witness will not lie. Well, why is that? I mean, King Solomon is just kind of putting that out there like that. Uh, why does that occur? Now, the second half says, he who speaks lies is a false witness. And that seems pretty obvious. I mean, in fact, we could say both halves of this verse are pretty obvious. And King Solomon wouldn't tell us something that we already obviously know. Um, so we want to ask the question, what's King Solomon really trying to get at here? Um, and Cam, you've mentioned one who tells the truth, uh, or a person tells the truth because they are, uh, they're good, okay? Um, but we'd want to define also in, in that context, well, what is the good? I mean, if we just say, well, truth is good and bad is false, we haven't necessarily uh, defined, you know, further. We might want to refine what those definitions uh, are. And you've mentioned choosing goodness. Uh, but let's start, let's start with, see if we can get to uh, a, a definition here. If we just take those first three words, when it says a faithful witness, question would be, what is a faithful witness? Can we define what a faithful witness is and get a working definition of that? If you had to define what's a faithful witness, what would you say? Okay, good. Cam, thank you. Witness to truth. In other words, a faithful witness is a person who tells the truth. And the faithful part, uh, my interpretation of that would be that means you can count on him. In other words, this person is going to tell the truth. And witness has to do with court. <clears throat> so he's going to tell the truth and you can count on him to tell what actually happened. So he's a witness who tells the truth, and he's faithful to do that. Okay? And you're right, Naomi. He speaks the facts. Okay? This is a guy who's going to tell it like it really is, and you can count on that. Now, it fir at first glance, it seems like then the first half of the verse 
is being redundant with itself. Because if we say that a faithful witness, by definition, is one who tells the truth, then, well, of course, a person who tells the truth wouldn't lie. So that would seem like, well, those two things are saying exactly the same thing. And that's a clue to us in understanding the verse. Because that suggests to us that King Solomon must have meant something else. Because he knows we know that. I mean, okay, a witness who tells the truth won't lie. I mean, that's kind of really obvious. So I will suggest that what King Solomon is getting at here, and this is the position, the interpretation that the Rabbeinu Yonah uh, gives, is that a person who is a faithful witness in a court of law, in other words, he won't lie there, also won't lie outside the court of law either. In other words, he will be consistent. So if you find a faithful witness, someone who is telling the truth in court, you have good reason for trusting him outside of court. Okay? And Cam, you've asked the question, uh, or Naomi's mentioned a person speaks facts and uh, fidelity. And Cam, you've asked, yeah, what does the original Hebrew say? So I'm going on the basis of uh, both the Hebrew and uh, the, uh, uh, the commentators here, uh, and also my, uh, my mentor, Rabbi Moskowitz. Um, so the different commentators sometimes interpret the verses um, differently, uh, and those different interpretations can all be correct. Uh, so sometimes if you look at Rashi, he'll say one thing, Matsudas might say something else, Meiri might see something else, Malbum would say something else, the Rabbeinu Yonah might say something slightly different. Uh, much of the time they're, they're similar, but sometimes they interpret the verse differently and sometimes they will actually read the Hebrew differently. And one will, you know, depending on the way the verse is structured, there may be a couple of different ways to interpret the verse. So in this case, uh, I'm looking at the position of the Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, who was one of the commentators. And so he's making the, the comment that a person who is faithful in a court of law won't lie outside the court either. Uh, so you can basically trust that person. By the same token, the second half of the verse says, he who speaks lies is a false witness. Again, a seemingly obvious statement. I mean, of course, somebody who speaks lies is a false witness. But the verse seems to be getting at a difference in the situation. If you know a person who speaks lies outside of court, then you know he will be a false witness inside court. In other words, his behavior in the regular situation indicates what his behavior will be in the court situation. So if you can't trust him in one place, you're not going to be able to trust him in the other place. Now, most of us don't necessarily end up dealing too much, I hope, in court situations, unless you happen to be an attorney or you're connected in some way uh, with the court system. Uh, but that then raises the question, so what can we learn from this? 
And I'll suggest a principle uh, that I first heard in a seminar years ago uh, from a man named Harvecker. I think it probably originated with some other people, but that was the first time that I uh, heard of that. Uh, and the principle is, how you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. What does that mean? It means that if you do something one way in a given situation, you'll likely do it a similar way if you're faced with a different situation. For example, if you're honest with your neighbor, you'll likely be honest in business. If you're honest in business, you'll likely be honest with your neighbor and with your family. If you're in a seminar situation, learning, say, about uh, how to do marketing, and you're afraid in that seminar situation to stand up and ask a question, you'll likely be afraid to speak up when you're out in the marketing situation or in a business meeting. If you dominate in a small group discussion, you'll likely dominate in other places as well. So how you do anything is how you do everything. In other words, you can tell by uh, what a person does how they will act in other kinds of situations. Now, uh, let me pause. Naomi, you asked, uh, should anyone be a reference or benchmarked in what he says in the court only? I'm not sure that I understand your question. Can you rephrase that? Um, not quite sure what that's getting at. Um, but the verse seems to be saying a person who tells the truth in court will be trustworthy outside of court. A person who speaks lies outside of court will likely be telling lies in court. So how can we use this? I mean, this is... Proverbs is all about very practical information for life. So how do you use a situation like this? <clears throat> in life, we have to deal with other people. A huge amount of life is about relationships. You have family relationships and marriage relationships and parent-child relationships and business relationships and neighbor relationships and all kinds. If you see someone acting in a certain way in a certain situation, it is a strong potential indicator of that person's character. Why? Because we tend to act consistently. So if a person treats, say, a stranger asking for directions, or maybe even more so, a stranger asking for money, if a person treats that stranger with patience and kindness and respect, well, how do you think that person will treat his spouse or his mother? you know, or his child. By contrast, if a person, you know, treats someone like that with irritation and shortness and, uh, you know, is rude or mean, how do you think they deal with other people? I mean, there is a certain consistency in human behavior. And in this verse, in the specifics, we see it with regard to truthfulness in and out of court. But the principle is much, much wider. Um, in my professional life, I've had to deal with presenting proposals to prospect companies. And you can tell a lot about what the relationship with the client will be 
if they hire you based on how they treat you during the proposal stage. You know, if they treat you well and with respect during the proposal stage, when you're not even a vendor of theirs, the relationship will probably also turn out that way. It'd be one based uh, on you know, respect and, and good treatment. If, however, the, the client treats you with you know, rudeness or disdain during the proposal process, well, that's probably what you're going to get if they select you as a vendor. You can think of it this way, you know, uh, if, a, if, uh, if a woman is, you know, dating a man, uh, if he beats the woman while they're dating, why would she think he'll be nice to her when they get married? You know, you get to see what the person's character will be like. So again, how you do anything is how you do everything. Uh, I'll give an example in a minute, but let me pause and catch up on, uh, on comments here. Um, uh, so a person has to be judged, Naomi, you're right, on what he says in court. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm reading your comments and I'm having a little bit of difficulty. Um, Figuring that out. So, uh, I mean, a person can be still be a righteous person. Oh, 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 okay, now I understand. Yes, I mean, a person can still be a righteous person and telling the truth, whether he's never been to court at all. A absolutely. But what this is talking about is referring to a court kind of situation uh, where someone would, um, uh, would need to, uh, uh, to be in, in that kind of a situation. Uh, so yes, you can absolutely be righteous uh, and tell the truth, even though you've never been an official uh, court witness. Absolutely. Now, how does this principle get used? If you remember the story of Eliezer, when he went to seek out a wife uh, for Isaac, do you remember the situation? He approaches the well and he prays to God uh, and sets up a situation where if a woman, you know, comes out and waters, you know, my camels uh, and such, then that should be the, the, uh, the wife for Isaac. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, wow, one little situation and he's be selecting a wife for somebody on that. But look at the situation and what that situation demonstrated about her character. She steps up and says, yes, I'll water your camels and let me give you some water uh, you know, uh, or let me give you some water and, and water your camels also. I mean, she's immediately displaying kindness and respect and uh, charity to a traveler. Uh, those are all very important character uh, characteristics. So he watches her in this one situation, and he's able to extrapolate her character from that observation. Uh, and as we know, she goes on to become Isaac's wife and, uh, and so forth. So this can be a very helpful principle in dealing with people. Um, you, when you watch people and how they deal in certain situations, uh, you can get an idea of what their character is going to be like and how they will act uh, in a different kind of situation. Um, so... Uh, that, that to me is an underlying principle 
that can be very helpful for us. And this particular verse is getting to a, a specific case of that. Any questions on this verse? Then let's move on. Uh, we are moving on to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 6. And this verse reads, The scoffer seeks wisdom, and there is none, but knowledge will come easily to the man of understanding. The scoffer seeks wisdom, and there is none, but knowledge will come easily to the man of understanding. So as we did before, let me pause and ask you, what are the questions here? What questions come to mind when you read that verse? When you look at it critically and try to see what King Solomon's trying to teach us, what questions, not answers yet, but let's just get questions on the table about that verse. Okay, Naomi, good, thank you. Who's a scoffer? I mean, what, what's a scoffer? What, what, what's that term mean? And, and why is he seeking wisdom? And how is it that wisdom will flow to the man of understanding? Excellent, excellent questions. And further, how is it that a scoffer seeks wisdom and there is none? I mean, you'd think he'd find some if he's looking. So what's going on there? So let's start with the first question of what's a scoffer? And I will submit to you that a scoffer is one who puts down other people and other situations and things. His focus is on what's wrong with things. And he actively seeks that out or finds ways to interpret events or things that other people do or whatever in order to be able to put other people down. That's his his modus operandi, his, the way he operates. And we've probably all run into people like that. No matter what the subject is, they will find something wrong to say about it. Or not something wrong, but they will find something wrong with it. Uh, no matter how, um, how much um, uh, you know, good a person does, uh, they'll find something that they could have done better, or they should have done differently, uh, or whatever. And yes, Eva... Uh, that's, I think, scoffer and scorner is probably, they're probably synonymous terms. Uh, and Naomi, yes, that can be in arguments, uh, or it could just be, you know, you happen to be with that person and you say, you know, gee, did you uh, see how that, uh, that young man over there helped that little old lady across the street? And the scoffer might say, uh, yeah, but he was probably doing it just because he hoped for a tip. Or, you know, uh, or something, they, you know, they put their way of doing things is putting other people down. Why do they do that? I'll submit that they do that because in their mind, if, in his mind, if he puts other people down, it makes him feel better about himself. It's a false goal because it doesn't really work, but it's kind of a, a, a fantasy in his own mind. In his own mind, he's superior. Okay, and by putting other people down, he raises himself up in his own mind. And so separates himself from everybody else. You know, I'm kind of a better class because I, all those other people are doing all those things wrong or incorrectly or whatever. So it's a way of, 
of fooling his own mind, of, of catering to an emotion that he has, that he is somehow superior. Now, uh, and Naomi, you mentioned orders in a comment. I'm not quite sure what that means or if there's a question there. So if there is, uh, if you can spell that out a little more, um, that'll help me. So what happens, so, so now we've, we've got an idea of what a scoffer is. So what happens when a scoffer seeks wisdom? And the verse says there is none. Well, how does that work? I'll suggest two reasons. First, if a scoffer approaches a truly wise person, so let's say that he really wants to know how to do something uh, or, or get some counsel from someone about maybe a business decision uh, uh, or whatever. If he truly approaches, or approaches a truly wise person, the truly wise person may not share their wisdom with him because the wise person knows he's a scoffer. And a wise person will only share ideas with a person who he knows will be able to absorb them and use them. In other words, he will only share information with a person to his benefit. And he won't share information with someone who he thinks will misuse it. So he might just choose to not share the information at all because he knows the nature of the scoffer and he does not want to share his wisdom with a person who will turn around and use it in a bad way. When you have wisdom, you have to be very careful with it. You don't always tell over everything that you know because, you know, you might tell something over to someone uh, that they will misuse or use in a terrible way. So that's one possible reason why a scoffer would seek wisdom and there is none. Uh, because no wise person will, will share wisdom with him because they know what he's like. A second possible reason why there is none is that if the scoffer does find someone who shares true wisdom with him, in order for the scoffer to really get it, he will have to see the error in his own position. In other words, he'll have to give up putting people down and realize that his fantasy and his behavior in the situation is a problem. But if he's committed to that behavior, if he's so emotionally tied in to uh, you know, getting his, his emotional fix by putting other people down, he won't be willing to give that up. And so the wisdom, even if it's presented to him, will elude him because he won't be able to see it. Remember, he's trained his mind to uh, listen to his emotions and not be able to see what he's truly doing. And unless he's willing to let go of that and actually see the truth of the idea, then he's going to be in a very difficult spot. Um, so uh, he won't find the wisdom because even if it comes to him, he'll be blind to being able to see it. So uh, those are a couple of reasons why uh, when the scoffer seeks wisdom, uh, the reality may be that there is none. Um, now, you, uh, Naomi, you said, can, um, can it be orders from a boss or higher up in a job situation? Uh, a, um, a boss could be a scoffer, okay? 
it could be that the, he has that particular attitude. And that becomes very challenging in a work situation uh, if you have a boss who's like that. Because, you know, if he's giving you orders or directions to go do something, uh, you may have to um, differentiate between the orders, the things you have to actually have to go do, and uh, the scoffing. Uh, so if he tells you, you know, you need to go do this particular job, and then he says, you know, but watch out for Harry over there because, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing, uh, then you have to, in your own mind, say, all right, I, I'm going to go over and work with Harry, but, you know, not take into account the, the scoffing and the negative kinds of statements that person may be making. Naomi, I hope I'm answering your question, so please let me know if I'm not. And Eva, yes, false accusations as well. Uh, I mean, that gets into the area of, you know, Leshon Hara and gossip uh, and, and so forth. And there we would have to, you know, take on dealing with the person and, um, uh, you know, uh, pushing back on the false accusation and, uh, you know, maybe demanding some evidence for it or uh, defending the person. So that deals then with the first half of the verse. The scoffer seeks wisdom and there is none. Second half says, knowledge will come easily to the man of understanding. Well, what's a man of understanding? I'll submit to you the man of understanding would be one who sees reality. He sees how he fits into life, and he's self-aware enough to be able to critically look at his own behavior and accept criticism about that behavior and deal with it rationally. In other words, if somebody comes along and says, you know, you're making a big mistake here, the man of understanding won't get defensive. His ego won't jump out there and say, no, I'm, I'm perfectly right. He'll stop and think about it, and he'll look at it, and his, his ego won't be part of the equation. He'll be looking at, hmm, does he have a point? Am I doing the right thing rationally? Should I be doing something different? Is this a wise course of action? And he will deal with that objectively from his intellect and not let his emotions cloud his understanding of seeing the truth of that situation. So, given that kind of an outlook, knowledge comes easily to him because he doesn't resist it. The scoffer, by contrast, is going to resist any information that goes against his emotional drive. But the man of understanding doesn't resist ideas because he's open to reality and is not being driven by his emotions, so the knowledge comes easily to him. Because when it's presented, when it, when it comes his way, no matter what the source, he's open to it, he's seeking it, he's actively got his radar out, you know, looking for uh, understanding. And yes, Eva, that's a form of discernment. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's able to discern between one thing and another, uh, if he had a boss who was a scoffer, he'd be able to discern between, okay, what's the actual direction I have to take uh, versus um, what's the, um, you know, what's the scoffing. If he's approached by a scoffer or someone who mixes in maybe scoffing but with some idea that might be useful, the man of understanding is open and he won't automatically dismiss things, but he'll stop and say, okay, that part of the conversation is truly just garbage, but this idea that the guy put out, well, now that's got some merit. 
and maybe I should look at that and think about that. Um, uh, when I was involved once in uh, a situation uh, with letters to the editor of a, of a local newspaper about a very, very emotionally charged topic for people, one guy, a bunch of people fired back just emotional responses about the issue. Well, one guy fired off partly an emotional response, but in the midst of his emotional response and, and sort of firing back a defense about the issue, there was the seed of a very, very wise question uh, that deserved, uh, you know, a hearing. And so a, a man of understanding will be open to that, and he'll be able to, to, you know, discern one from the other. And part of the way that you learn how to do that is... Uh, by being involved in this kind of learning, where we look at ideas and we analyze them and take them apart and, and try to discern between, you know, one thing and another. What does this mean? What does that mean? Is this different from that? If so, why and how? We're like, in that sense, scientists. Uh, if, if you think about what a scientist does, they, um, they work on perfecting that part of their, their mind that discerns one thing from another. That's the essence, if you will, of classification. What's the difference between, you know, an antelope and a giraffe? That's a, a classification. Well, one's got a longer neck, one's got different skin colorations, one has more longer fur, you know, one uh, gets their food this way, one gets their food that way. So that type of discernment comes by practice and through asking questions and learning to ask more questions, questions maybe that we didn't see before about what's the difference between this thing and that thing, uh, and being open to hear a question and uh, try to recognize when our ego is resisting uh, or when there's an actual difference. Sometimes if we're involved in a discussion or an argument with someone and they're being very rude or mean, it's easy, uh, or, or if they're just being obnoxious, it's easy to dismiss everything they're saying and say, well, that person's just obnoxious. But you have to listen carefully because there might be something there that's worth looking at, and it requires an effort to get our intellect out in front of our ego and look at those various statements the person is making and say, well, yeah, that statement was just an insult, and that statement was just an insult, and that statement was, uh, wasn't anything. But this little piece here... He's got a point. Even though he's being maybe rude or mean or obnoxious, he has a point here, and that point deserves some investigation. So it's this process uh, of doing this that uh, gets us continually involved and helps, helps us to grow in this ability to discern. It's all about practice uh, and you know, just doing it a lot, and then it starts to become automatic. That's why always at the beginning of these verses, I always ask generally, what are the questions? So that we get into the habit of and get practice in asking questions and asking more questions and questions on our questions so that we can develop uh, that skill. Okay, any questions on this verse? All right, in that case, let's move on. We are now at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 7. 14.7. And the verse reads, Go far away from a man who is a fool, or you will not know the lips of knowledge. Go far away from a man who is a fool, or you will not know the lips of knowledge. 
So now you all know what I'm about to say, or about to ask, which is, what are the questions? When you look at those words, go far away from a man who is a fool, or you will not know the lips of knowledge, what questions can we ask around that? And again, we're asking inquiry. It's like being a detective. We're wanting to know, okay, what, what's that verse telling us? What doesn't fit right? What seems strange about it? What isn't obvious to us? What do you think? What are the questions? Okay, so Eva, you've said a symptom of foolish. So I'm not sure whether that's a question or uh, an answer. Naomi, uh, you've said far away means what? Okay, go far away. Like, what does that mean? Like two feet, three feet, six miles? Or is it referring to something else? Good. Who is a fool here? Okay. And what will we not know about the lips? Yeah, what does that mean? You will not know the lips. And Sharon, good. You've asked the question, what lips of knowledge? Why does it just say you won't know knowledge? You know, why, uh, why the lips of knowledge? Excellent. Because usually, when King Solomon uses a particular um, way of saying it, there's a reason he did that, and there's a clue there of what he's trying to get at. He doesn't always lay, lay out just very, you know, clearly in front of us exactly what he's saying. There's, there's some digging required here to get it. Um, okay. And Eva, you wrote, is what? Uh, help me out. I'm not quite sure what you mean there. Um, oh, okay. If I'm understanding, you're saying, what is a symptom of foolish? Okay. Okay. All right, good. Thank you. So the, the questions that I came up with, you've already covered a couple of them. What are the lips of knowledge? And why did King Solomon use those words? And then one other question. Why will you not know the lips of knowledge unless you distance yourself from a fool? Because if you see what it says, it's saying, go far away from a man who's a fool, or you will not know the lips of knowledge. Well, why is that? Why couldn't I stay close to a man who's a fool and still know the lips of knowledge. The verse seems to be saying, if you don't distance yourself from a fool, you won't know the lips of knowledge. And so we want to know why is that and how does that work? So the commentators offer a variety of interpretations on this verse. And I'd like to take three of them. And again, this gets to the point that the different commentators sometimes take different views on this, and you can learn something from them all. So Rashi and Matsudos suggest that if you don't distance yourself from a fool, you'll end up being like him. So how does that happen? And I will suggest that there's a key principle here. Who you hang around with and what you focus on in life matters. Who you hang around with and what you focus on in life matters. If I focus on negativity, that's what my life, that is my mental time and my psyche, that's what it becomes filled with, negativity. 
if I hang around people who are doing foolish and stupid things. It's very difficult for me not to be influenced by that. After a while, I will very likely start to become like them. And if I start to become foolish, how will I be able to gain knowledge? So, I believe that what this suggests is that what we think and who we listen to and what we watch and perhaps most importantly what we focus on can make a huge difference in our lives. You have all heard the idea, I'm sure, that, the man, that man was created in the image of God. One approach to interpreting this is to consider that man was also given the opportunity to create. I mean, God is the creator. If we were created in the image of God, then one interpretation of that is that man was also given the opportunity to create, and that he what he was given the opportunity to create is his own experience. A person who chooses to focus on that which is stupid and foolish will get a certain experience of life. If you can just imagine for a moment being involved every day in doing foolish things and being around foolish people. So, I mean, if you can sort of just imagine a group of really foolish people that are doing very foolish things and you're hanging around with them all the time, okay? Think about what your life would be like. All the input that you're getting and you know, what's, what you're having to face, what you're seeing visually, what you're hearing with your ears, and what's sort of entering your mind as a result of doing that. Now, imagine a person who is surrounded all the time by Torah scholars who are focused on what is good and what is right and what is true and what is beautiful and what is real, who are analyzing ideas and uh, learning to discern one thing from another and looking at consequences and that's their whole focus. Imagine if you were with people like that eight, ten hours a day. Wouldn't you have a different experience of life than the person who's hanging out with foolish people? I mean, those people who focus on what's good and right and true and beautiful and real, they get a different experience in life. This is not a magical thing. Okay, I think there, there's, there's a philosophy out there that, you know, you just magically attract to you what you're thinking about. And I'll submit to you that, that there's, there's no magical in this. It's that one person focuses his attention on one thing and another person focuses his attention on another thing. Um, I once was very interested in a particular kind of car. And once I became really interested in it and I got the brochure from the dealership and I put the picture of the car up in my bedroom, I began to notice those cars, you know, like appearing in, in, when I would be out and about. Well, is it that I magically attracted those cars to me? No, those cars were there all the time. It's just that my mind was now focused on that particular kind of car, and so when, when one went by me, I noticed it. Similarly, when you're involved in a world of foolishness, okay, you're going to create that experience in your life. When you're involved 
in the world of true ideas, in the world of reality and, and beauty, uh, that's going to create a different experience for you. So, uh, a further example, if you can imagine the difference between a person who focuses his entire day reading and editing hate literature versus a person who focuses his entire day on reading, studying, and reflecting on Torah and Torah ideas. Each person is going to have an experience of life. And I will submit to you that the person who focuses his entire day reading and editing hate literature is going to have a very different experience of life than a person who spends his day focused on uh, studying and reflecting on true ideas. In that sense, we create our own experience of life. Uh, and as, as an interesting, uh, I guess, further expansion of that, um, an idea that I first heard from Jack Canfield, um, it, and many people have said it, I think, in many different ways, uh, but he said, if someone comes up to you, or this is the essence of what he said, when someone comes up to you and, and uh, says something mean to you, he said, it's not what they're saying that bothers you. It's what you start saying to yourself after they stop talking that bothers you. In other words, it's, it's the story that we tell ourselves about what's happening that creates our experience of it. It's not, the, uh, it's not what's happening uh, itself. Um, during in the San Francisco, uh, or one of the California earth, um, earthquakes, uh, just in you know, the last uh, 10 or so years, one of the big ones where freeways had to be shut down and so forth and commutes became very, very long for people. A newspaper reporter um, you know, interviewed some people blocked in traffic and he asked this one guy who was stuck in traffic, you know, what do you think about all this or something like that? And the guy said, oh, this is terrible. It's taking me all this time to get to work. You know, I'm wasting my time. It's da-da-da-da-da. And he was just very negative and sounded like he was kind of ranting about it. The reporter interviewed another guy who said, hey, I got my cup of coffee with me. I got my tape player. I'm listening to some good stuff. You know, life's great. Now, they're both experiencing virtually the same thing externally. But the story that they're telling themselves about it is very, very different. So... The story that we tell ourselves about our experience and what goes on in our minds helps to create our own experience of life. So Rashi and Matsudos are saying, if you don't distance yourself from a fool, you'll end up like him because you'll end up focusing on and picking up those foolish traits. Okay, before I go on, any questions on that interpretation? Okay, second interpretation. The Rabbeinu Yonah suggests that you want to stay far away from someone when you aren't sure whether they possess lips of knowledge because they may be someone who shames or embarrasses other people because of their nature, their arrogant or angry nature, or they may be someone who lets out other people's secrets. In other words, his reason is that it's dangerous to associate with people like that, which is true, it is. If you can't trust them, 
And if they don't have lips of knowledge, in other words, lips that are speaking knowledge, it can be dangerous from a practical point of view to associate with them because they may shame or embarrass you or they may tell over something secret about you. You know, we talk to people and we have a certain level of trust with them and we tell over certain things and uh, they may, a, a person who's, who's untrustworthy, uh, you know, may take that information and turn around and use it against us. Uh, and, and say it out of context or say it in a way that, you know, causes us to, uh, uh, to look bad or something along that line. So he's saying you got to be careful who you hang around with and that uh, if someone doesn't possess lips of knowledge, uh, then you want to be very circumspect and keep your distance from that person if you know... Um, that, uh, that that's the way they are. So in his interpretation, we're learning an important thing about staying away from people who we know uh, have certain traits or characteristics. You have to be careful around people. Uh, my mentor, Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, shared with me at one point that uh, he suggests uh, or generally operates with information on a need-to-know basis. We do this in business sometimes when we're dealing with confidential information. We only tell people who absolutely have a need to know because we have to keep the information absolutely confidential and the more people you tell something, the more opportunity that something will slip. Well, that's true with almost any information in life. If, if I know that, um, you know, gee, the the uh, people down the street had to move out of their house because they went bankrupt. There is no reason that I need to tell that to any other person or any other, say, neighbor in my neighborhood. Uh, if, if I somehow became aware of that, okay, fine, I know it, but I need to keep information within me on a need-to-know basis. That helps to avoid uh, gossip or Lashon Hara, which is just a terrible thing and very, very poisonous. Um, so Rabbeinu Yonah is saying, watch out for a person who might do that to you uh, and keep your distance from them. So this is a very practical thing about protecting yourself. Any questions on that interpretation? One more. The Me'iri adds another very interesting interpretation to the second half. The second half reads, you will not know the lips of knowledge. In other words, go away from a man who's a fool or you will not know the lips of knowledge. He interprets lips of knowledge to mean to admit that you did not know. So, in other words, he's suggesting that a person should train himself to admit that he does not know something. Okay? So again, he's, he's interpreting lips of knowledge as to admit that you did not know. And why is that important? A person who is sure of himself all the time and always thinks that he has the answers is someone who will not know the lips of knowledge because he's not open to an idea. 
A person has to be open to an idea in order to hear knowledge, and a person who thinks he already knows everything, or already has it down, or, you know, I've got my belief system and I don't need anything else, that person is not open to an idea. And so he won't be able to hear knowledge when it comes his way. That's why some religious approaches to life that focus totally on the idea of you have to believe this and you never question it and that's that, lock people into a mindset where they, they can't be open to hearing an idea. And so they'll, they'll never be able to, you know, potentially question whether what they actually are believing is the truth. So the Me'iri is teaching us here to be willing to say that we don't know, to be open to that new idea that comes along so that we can hear knowledge when it's presented. In other words, we have to approach life with an open mind. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz has shared with me that one of the sages, and I don't recall for sure which one, I think it might have been Sajigon, said, you should always think that you're right. I mean, why wouldn't you that? I mean, if you're operating on a certain basis, you know, you should always think that you're right and, and this is a big and very important and, simultaneously be willing to retract if someone can show you that you're wrong. So you basically, you have to operate on the knowledge that you have uh, and, and assume, yeah, I'm operating on that knowledge, this is what I know, and so I'm right. But if somebody comes along and says, well, Doug, no, you're not right because look at this. I have to be open enough to carefully consider whether they're correct, and if they are, then I need to retract from my former position and change my view and change my my, uh, my position. If you think about what each of us has gone through in our journey in coming to the truth of Torah, there was a point in our lives when we thought something different, most likely, and we thought we were right. But now we see a different, you know, a, 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 a bigger truth or a different truth. And we may be shown an idea tomorrow, next month, next year, that will change what we see now. So we want to operate on the basis of the knowledge we have and be constantly seeking new knowledge and be open to that and be willing to change our position. I heard someone say who was in their, their uh, you know, latter years um, with regard to their belief system, well, I'm too old to change. And I thought that was a very sad, uh, a sad thing. Because we should always be open till the day we die for, to, to have someone be able to share an idea with us. And if we see the wisdom of it and the truth of it, then uh, be able to retract from our current position and not be so locked in, well, I've always thought it was this way and I'm not going to change. The Torah approach is to be constantly involved in questions uh, and in learning. And to do that, we have to have an open mind. Discerning, yes, and we certainly want to question carefully, but we want to have that open, uh, open mind. And yes, Eva, you have a great point. We do tend to get, uh, we hope, wiser in our old age from experience, and we recognize, you know, changes we've made along the way, and that we, you know, we don't have all the answers, uh, and so hopefully we're more uh, uh, 
uh, we're more open as we uh, as we go along. Some people, unfortunately, I think, uh, sometimes may go another direction where they get more and more locked in to the way they've do, done things. Um, but the challenge is to stay open. And yes, even sometimes that truth can hurt. Interestingly, the hurt comes from our emotions. And it's all about the story, I think, that we're telling ourselves. And that can come also from... Uh, from our ego, but if we're able to let our intellect lead us and be more interested in the truth than in, you know, our own position, then uh, we really have the opportunity to learn and grow and, and continue to develop. Um, and Naomi, yes, mostly the environment changes, uh, wise or foolish, uh, and, and that's reality, and we have to deal with that. Uh, and if we're, if we're resisting it, that's going to create pain in it. Generally, most of our emotional pain, and maybe all of it, comes from resisting reality. Uh, and we certainly want to be active in trying to make things happen that are good things uh, and changing the world, uh, even in our own you know, small part of it when we can, uh, but at the same time uh, recognize reality and be very cognizant of the story that we're telling ourselves about it uh, so that um, uh, we can create a life experience that is a very positive one for ourselves. Okay, any questions on that verse? Yes, Eva, that's a very important point. In life, you don't get all the answers at once. Uh, and I'll have to say that one of the things that I struggled with at the beginning of my Torah learning uh, was I want to have all the answers and everything just like right now. And I had to get used to the idea that that wasn't going to happen, that you can't get all the answers at once. It's a development and there's a growth process and you can't push it and you can't skip steps along the way. Uh, there was one sage who uh, in the Talmud who had a question and he didn't get an answer on it for I think it was 23 years. Uh, he, he held that question before he got an answer. So you're right, you don't get the answers all at once. And, uh, it's, and, and it's also not about, uh, you know, arriving at a point where we get uh, the answers, uh, where we have, quote, all the answers. It's about being on the journey and the involvement continually in the world of ideas and the world of learning. And you're right, um, Eva, we have to digest one truth at a time and make sure that it's real to us and that we've asked all the questions around it so we can fully understand it, that's when it really begins to, um, uh, to, uh, to affect us. Um, Naomi, you are right. The world has many fools, and part of the book of purpose of, or one of the results of studying the book of Proverbs is to help us be able to recognize those and keep our distance from them. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, you may have to deal with one just because that's the, the experience that you're in, uh, but the study of Proverbs can also uh, help you with the skills in being cautious around working with those people if you have to, uh, and then recognizing them and to the degree that you can distancing yourself uh, from them uh, so that you, you know, aren't impacted by their ideas. So very good points. Any other questions or comments? 
Naomi, you're right. Hibernating is one way. The difficulty with that is that uh, there, there are two, um, or maybe three. One is it's very lonely existence. Um, and people are, you know, relationship-oriented. I mean, it's kind of, I think, part and parcel of the human condition is that we tend to thrive on relationships. Um, the other is if you hibernate yourself too much from teachers and don't have teachers that can help guide your learning, a person can end up going down the wrong path and not realizing it. Uh, and without a teacher to help them, uh, they can really get way off track. So, uh, but it... It's a point. The, the, the path of really trying to find the truth uh, can sometimes be a very lonely one. Uh, but I will submit to you that uh, it's, it's a very rewarding one. And uh, uh, so it, it just a great, great thing to be on. And Sharon, thank you. Yeah, new truth builds on the previous one. That's absolutely so. Once you learn one idea clearly, it opens the doors to many other ideas uh, that you can build on uh, from that. Okay, I see that we're, we're over our time, so we'll stop here uh, uh, for the night. And uh, thank you all so much for being with us, and I hope you can join us next time.